From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Hi, everyone. It's Jonathan Kohler. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy our program, please rate our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. It makes a huge difference. On this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Alan Kirk. Dr. Kirk did his transplant fellowship right here at UW-Madison. He's gone on to be the chair of surgery at Duke University. As you'll hear, he has remarkable insights as a surgeon and scientist about the simplicity and complexity of organ transplantation and what defines a surgeon. I spoke to Dr. Kirk after he gave it an illuminating grand rounds here at UW. If you want to see his full talk, we have a link on the website, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Dr. Kirk, welcome to the surgery set. It's great to be here. It's great to be back uh, to University of Wisconsin. Yeah, you spent uh, a few years here in the course of your extensive training. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, this is, I spent two years here, and uh, I would say that even though it was a minority of the amount of time I've spent in training, it imprinted more on me than probably any other place that I've ever been. Just a great environment and uh, a great group of people still to this day. And this is where you did your transplant fellowship. Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you, how you ended up in Madison and then a quick recap of your journey since, which has taken you all over and now to, to a very uh, exalted spot at Duke. Uh, well, you know, University of Wisconsin was known as a, a innovative center for transplantation uh, for many, many years, all driven by Dr. Belzer. Dr. Belzer was recognized as a pioneer in the field, you know, early in his career. And the program here was just light years ahead of everybody else, not only in how they practiced transplantation, but how they taught it. And so Duke, Dr. Sabiston, which was who's my chair, knew Dr. Belzer very well, and he was quite keen on sending people from Duke to University of Wisconsin because he thought that was the best place to get training. And that's how I ended up coming up here. It was days before the match, so your chair would just call the other chair and say, you know, come up and interview. And Dr. Belzer called me and said, uh, you know, we'd like you to come to Wisconsin. So I said, yeah, let's... Let's go. Wow. Before that, I had gotten in your MD and then a PhD in immunology yeah. at Duke. Yeah. And now you're you're back at Duke as yeah. as the chair. Yeah. So the, the immunology uh, was necessary to understand transplantation. It, it still requires a lot of additional scientific thought to be in this field. I think as an investigator. So. I, the PhD gave me some extra time to think about that. I guess I was slow on the uptake. Being able to go from that experience to here, which was a very intensive and thoughtful clinical experience, uh, set me up for success going forward. I was in the military, so I went back to Washington, D.C. after my fellowship here, and then uh, was taken up by the NIH and ran the transplant program there for about 10 years, and then uh, was asked to go to Emory University uh, to be vice chair for research there. The thing that was most attractive about Emory was that I had many colleagues that were studying the same biology, and so it made great sense to take what I had done at the NIH and move it to a bigger clinical environment. And then when I got asked to come back to Duke, I I couldn't have scripted it better. It was really quite an honor to to be back at that institution. Yeah, full circle. Yeah, yeah. You talk in your talk... um, which was just, it was a lovely talk, and, and obviously people can go and, and see it online. I think 
I was sitting in the back and, and we were talking not just about the content of your talk, but also just the, the presentation and the, the simplicity of your of a presentation that actually, you know, every slide would be a course in immunology in itself if you sort of delved deeply into the details. Um, but for even for a, a, a non-immunology PhD audience, like it was it was very accessible because because you make this sort of anthropomorphic metaphor about the way that we learn about tolerance and the way we handle foreign material, where you, where you talk about how an immune response is a decision involving specificity, context, and magnitude. And I, I was really struck by that, by the, by the way that you were able to just kind of break down what is a sort of infinitely complex issue. How does the immune system work? Into those three factors and show how that holds, that, that those three axes really hold. Well, I think that as we understand things uh, better, they become more simple. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you look at all of the complexity of uh, genetic code, but it's, you know, just four base pairs. Mm -hmm. uh, and everything comes from that. Uh, I think that uh, if we can break things down to, you know, fairly fundamental truths and then make decisions based on that, it becomes more actionable. Uh, if you get increasingly complex, you can maybe understand it better, but it it doesn't help you do things better. And I, I will tell you this, Dr. Saviston, who was my chair when I was resident, never tried to teach complicated concepts. He always tried to teach fundamentals hmm. because in the middle of the night when you're in trouble, it's the fundamentals that get you out of trouble. The the, the details get you into trouble. Right. Uh, but And so I've always tried to approach even difficult scientific things uh, through that same sort of fundamental uh, focal point. Yeah, it, it's so interesting because it seems like as I've sort of been learning surgery, right, and I'm early in my career, but, you know, you, you come in and, and you're like, okay, well, this is this is all simple. Like, what's the big deal? Then you start to realize, oh, no, every single decision that you make actually is underpinned by data or lack thereof. And mostly you get lost in the weeds. Mostly the latter, right? Mostly, and then you realize, actually, we don't know anything at all. Huh. And you're just sort of shooting in the dark. And then I'm starting to glimpse now like the other side where you, you sort of you have an appreciation for that complexity and and so you're able to make it simple again. Well you still need right? to organize your thoughts yeah. and, and if, if you have a thousand facts they're worthless mm -hmm. uh, but if you have them organized into some general rubrics uh, they start making sense. When I teach medical students about surgery um, I basically say that most of surgery is, selling, is, is uh, anastomosing vascularized tissue to vascularized tissue without tension. <laughs> and and if you get that right, that explains almost all the complications that we see. If one of the tissues is non-vascularized, if there's some element of ischemia, if there's tension involved, that's where all this stuff comes from. Now, why there's ischemia, there's a thousand reasons for that. Right. If, why there might have been tension, thousand reasons for that. But in its most simple form, you know, surgery can get pulled into some fairly uh, common concepts. And mm -hmm. similarly, when I, I do a lecture on wound healing, and the, the one thing I want medical students to know about wound healing is that wounds heal, that we don't actually have to do much to them to get that to happen as long as they're vascularized 
and there's no tension on them. Right. <laughs> and then they'll heal. Now, they may not heal as fast or with the scar you want, and there's all sorts of details on how to make them heal. But in, by and large, they'll do okay. Uh, and those ground truths are the things that help people organize all the detail that then gets them that extra 5% of efficacy that we're looking for in modern medicine. If you sort of accept that if you can get the tissues to just approximate and make sure that they're well vascularized, that's 95% of the way. And then the understanding of the epigenetics, the cytokine cascades, right, that right. gets you that margin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it, it doesn't go the other way around. You can know everything about the cytokines and the epigenetics, but if you don't sew the stuff together correctly, it doesn't work. And yeah. so uh, it, I guess it's a hierarchical, hierarchical like pyramid of things you need to know uh, versus things that are nice to know. Right. Um, right. And uh, as I've thought about transplantation, you know, almost continuously for thirty years now, the fundamental things are the things that get us out of trouble, mm-hmm. uh, and the details are the things that get us into trouble for sure. <laughs> And and the work you're doing is it, it is on that margin to some degree, right? I mean, oh, yeah. transplant immunology and and getting people to not reject their organs. Yeah. Um, what before I heard this talk, I would have said getting people to tolerate their organs, but it turns out that's more complicated, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, avoiding rejection is something we're reasonably good at. It's just that it requires, as you show in your your talk, a handful of medicine every day um, to do. And and you have achieved um, something remarkable, which is that you you have patients on very low amounts of medication um, and even some patients who are are off of immunosuppression by thinking about it in a a way I'd never thought about. Yeah. um, Our goals now are different than what our goals were 20 years ago you know before there was good organ preservation dr belzer or uh, adequate immunosuppression uh mycophenolate mofetilins dr solinger uh and um b- before we had a good viral prophylaxis uh you know people were just dying all the time and always in the units and and the goals were short term survival type goals those just aren't the goals now. Now all the goals are, you know, long-term lifestyle. Are people, you know, living 20 years with their graft? Are they not getting the secondary complications of the drugs? You know, any drug that you're on for 20 years, something's going to happen. And so uh, the general thought that the less you're on, the better you'll be is good. But you can't go that extra step and say, well, at all costs, we should try to take people off of all drugs because the fundamental truth is that the adaptive immune system is adaptive and it's going to change it's going to change continuously so you have to be able to work with that change as opposed to try to get to some thought that you're going to fix the immune system in place where it won't change mm-hmm. uh, you know in everything that you do that the only thing that is constant is change um, and so you have to adapt to that the key point I, that i sort of took away from your talk was this idea that it's immune t- tolerance is not a dichotomous thing, right? You're not either intolerant of something or tolerant of something. Yeah. You don't reject something or not reject something, yeah. right? It's all a continuum. Yeah, well, that's and subtlety. And it can be tweaked. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the beginning of the talk, I pointed out that our thoughts about medicine and thoughts about science are always influenced by what's going on in society. Mm-hmm. And... uh 
I think that in the digital world, we sometimes forget that the world is not digital, it's analog. There, there is a spectrum between two points that has every uh, possible combination between the two. It's not on or off. That's just not the way the world works. And, and so that appreciation of the spectral nature of things is being lost, I think, on the American public. You know, if it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, it doesn't count. Yeah, and, right. This and, is not the that's not the Twitter approach to problem not the, solving. It, well, certainly, so I, I'm, I won't go there. But yeah. I I will, will say that I, I'm afraid that our medical students are trying to distill things down into dichotomous things because they think digitally mm, as opposed right. to analog, and that's not. I mean. Light, we see it all the time. It's not your, the light is not on or off. The light can have every, uh, radiation in, in the spectrum and it can change in all sorts of subtle ways. Right. Uh, and every, I think every decision we make in medicine and every decision we make in society has to just accept the, the complexity of that spectrum or we make bad decisions. And, uh, the immune system shows us that in a very demonstrable, uh, experimental way. I think society sometimes shows us that uh, in a demonstrable way as well. Right. It's just a question of scale, right? I mean, yeah. it's like. Well, the magnitude. Yeah. It's so fascinating now, I think, that we're finally appreciating the sort of quantum nature of biology. Yeah. Right? That, like, that things are not classical physics right where like if you hit something it has predictable momentum and predictable direction no it, like you hit something and it enters a probability cloud of what can happen right yeah. and, and we're we're learning to work with that instead of saying like we're going to turn off this gene yeah. and expect a very concrete answer to that yeah. we discover oh we turn off this gene and there are a dozen other things that happen that are unpredictable well i think if if i were going into medical school now i would definitely understand statistics and probability. Mm. Uh, it makes you understand things so much better than any other biology, but it also will ensure that you are frustrated the rest of your life <laughs> because so few people understand statistics and probability and how it influences our day-to-day -day work. Uh, insight is often uh, the origin of frustration. <laughs> I think that's just such a fundamental truth yeah. um, of of what it's like to practice medicine, right? That like, yeah. in fact, you're, you're never going to get those black and whites, right? You're only going to be able to navigate the gray. Yeah, and, and as health systems, we have to put practitioners in a position to be more likely to be in the good side of the, the probability than the bad side. Mm -hmm. But we can't mistake that for really understanding what's happening at an individual level. You know, the opportunities to make decisions based on individual biology is before us. And I think that people that are going through medical school now will, before the end of their careers, be making truly individual decisions as opposed to probabilistic decisions about populations. Mm -hmm. And that's quite exciting. You know, we can get a 95% solution probabilistically but that always sort of gives us 5% of people that do poorly. Yeah. We can probably chip away at that 5% as long as it does not disrupt the probabilistic approach to getting us the first 95%. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you're doing that. You are looking at patients and, and are 
are able to to identify which patients maybe won't respond yeah, as I, well to the the, the medicine, medication regimens you've developed. Yeah, so I think that if, I think we're getting to a point now where we can look at someone's immune system and get a little better understanding of what their risk of a certain type of reaction is, um, and trying to understand that biology is fascinating career in and of itself. At an individual level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, our ability to do high density data analysis on individuals is uh, definitely uh, in the future. And the key, and this is important for surgeons, is that we are the people that still in interface with the patient. And we are the ones that are able to get the ground truth for all of these probabilistic models. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that puts surgeons at this beautiful intersection point of reality and probability. Yeah. And, and if we can connect that well by providing good quality samples and, and good quality data and organizing that in such a way that people can build better models of healthcare, uh, we will move the needle for sure. Someone asked me what defines a surgeon. I think it's actually somebody that still has a tactile experience with the disease, Mm -hmm. that that we Mm -hmm. hold the disease. Mm -hmm. And you can't outsource that. Uh, And it's one of the few things now that can't be outsourced, that we have to be in the room with the patient at some point and feel what's going on. Now, somebody listening to this will go, well, robotics, you know, you can do it. (laughs) But at some point, I think you still have to have a... A real appreciation, a personal experience with the disease, and that's what's going to get all the data that is required to build the models that may have us make better probabilistic decisions. And one thing I would encourage uh, medical students to go back and read is uh, something called On the Surgery. It was written by Hippocrates. Uh, you think uh, going back 3,000 years, what possibly could they know? Actually, if you read it, you will recognize everything in it. It talks about the positioning of the light and the manipulation of tissues, and and it is completely recognizable because from the beginning of time to now, surgeons still have a tactile appreciation for disease, and that's our value to healthcare, and we can't give that up, and we can't get to the point where surgeons stop having a tactile appreciation of disease. You have to see the patient. You have to feel the disease. You have to translate that into something that then you can make uh, decisions based on. That's as a great, as great a distillation of what we do and why we do it as I have ever heard. Well, it's what I believe, and uh, uh, I think that it's uh, just paraphrasing people for three thousand years. I mean, you know, it's, not, it's just not changed, and I think it comes back to one of those ground truths. Mm-hmm that uh, the more you can distill things down into their most fundamental components, the better off you'll be. Particularly from a personal standpoint, I can't remember all the complicated stuff anyway, so I have to distill things down into simple components so I can remember it. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Kirk, thank you again so much for coming back to visit us in Madison, and uh, it was a a joy to hear your talk, and uh, thank you for joining us on the surgery set. It's a pleasure to be here. Go Badgers. (laughs) Thanks for joining my conversation with Dr. Alan Kirk. Next time on The Surgery Set, we'll continue our transplant talks with Dr. Robert Redfield. He's one of our very own transplant surgeons and the international authority on an extremely rare condition, loin pain hematuria syndrome. (laughs) 
The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health Video Library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.